The blueprint for a typical startup involves investing heavily in cloud services, either from Amazon or Google or Microsoft Azure. The high costs of these cloud businesses can quickly eat away at all of the money that your startup has raised if you go all in with one of these cloud service providers. In today's episode, Avi Friedman outlines some of the infrastructure mistakes that can set a company back severely. These mistakes that he outlines are cloud jail, hipster tools, and lack of monitorability. Avi is the CEO of Kentic, a network traffic, performance, and security visibility company. So Avi gets lots of perspective from his work on the infrastructure side of the average company. We also discussed the business of running a software company contrasted with the life of a poker player. Avi and I both have some experience playing high-stakes poker, so it was a great opportunity to get his perspective on the parallels between the two fields. Um, what is What are the difficulties of running a software business, and how do those compare to the difficulties of being a poker player? Avi Friedman is the CEO of Kentic. Avi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be on. You are running Kentic, which is a product that gives companies visibility into their network traffic and their performance and security. And you were recently interviewed for this article on the First Round blog, where you discussed three infrastructure mistakes that you see a lot of companies making. And before we get to talking about these mistakes, which we will talk about, can you describe Kentic a little more? Explain why the company that you're working on gives you so much perspective into what the layout of the average infrastructure of a company looks like today. Sure. So Kentic was started to solve what the network nerds call the NetFlow problem. So to the hardcore people that manipulate the packets that go across the networks, they would say Kentic is a badass NetFlow tool. So NetFlow is the traffic summaries of what's going across, and it could be uh, hosts, hypervisors, router switches. There's other kinds of things. There's NetFlow, SFlow, IPFix, but they're all broadly called flow. And uh, a lot of people that run infrastructure had been struggling because there had been no big data approach to this. It was uh, single machine, open source uh, packages like NFDump and PM account and Silk. And to run infrastructure at scale, to have something that was open, had a SQL interface, an API, multi-tenant, there was just nothing like that. So uh, a number of friends from the infrastructure community that I talked to said something needed to be done. And I thought that was a great thing to focus on uh, for a startup, not only because we could help people with the very basic nerd knobbiness of peering and when do I add a switch, but also because of some of those security and performance analytics features that you could build in if you designed it uh, from scratch. What happens is we wind up seeing the core underlying pieces of people's infrastructures, whether they run it themselves or whether they're in AWS, GCE, uh, even we have a customer in the new Oracle cloud uh, hosting with a hosting provider. We see where these things are and we wind up getting involved and in talking about the bones of their infrastructure underneath their applications. Okay. so. Given that domain, you obviously have lots of perspective on infrastructure, and I know you've been in the industry for a long time, so I'm sure your your experience gives you a chronology of how things have evolved um, and the different layers of the stack. So let's get into these mistakes that you talk about people making often. You talk about 
cloud jail. What is cloud jail? I've seen a lot of companies, uh, not just Kentic customers, go through the evolution of their first product all the way to scale up. And what I call cloud jail is when you get locked into, especially a single cloud provider, having built your product on top of a platform that gives you very rich abstractions for storage and load balancing and monitoring and queuing. You build all these things into your applications and you find that the one cloud provider that you've selected might not be right anymore, usually for cost or performance reasons. Um, security is not that much a concern as it used to be a long time ago. People generally trust the cloud infrastructure to be more secure than their own nowadays. Okay, so you mentioned this cloud jail. People get locked into paying for these services that they really can't afford in the longer term. Do these do do these companies typically get locked into a, an expensive cloud infrastructure before they get to profitability, or is it like post profitability and they can actually afford it, but it's just like a big issue, or is it they they literally get there before they can actually pay for it? So it's not typically uh, as straightforward as profitability. It's really when do people get past initial scale? It's clear that they've got a business, uh, they have users. They're actually running their product. The metrics usually are a little different for B2B versus B2C, uh, but you'll typically be in running database and load balancers and your services. Um, you might be, uh, whether it's monolithic or microservices, you're pretty complex infrastructure uh, and your bill creeps up into the 100,000, 200,000 a month. And all of a sudden, what, what was really cheap is now costing you multiple engineers worth of uh, expense and it becomes something that that people need to look at so in what ways is the the cloud service business in what ways do people actually get locked in because i know there are certain services where the lock-in is not so severe but it seems like there are other ones that are more severe like perhaps authentication or queuing maybe email services what are the services that are, are people should really be wary of Let's use an analogy and just talk about Dyn, for example, right? Dyn DNS, right? Amazon has a DNS as a service. A lot of people had issues going multi-vendor when Dyn was under attack because they use the monitoring API. They use the provisioning API because they do discovery or dynamic DNS in it. Relatively simple little things that are actually not that hard to abstract into a multi-vendor environment, uh, but can be complex. As you mentioned, queuing. Um, you know, generally pretty simple, but there are some primitives, there's some latency. Load balancing is often really complex because how do you do health checks, right? And how does that integrate into your infrastructure? Block storage, usually pretty easy. Again, if you've designed that abstraction layer around it so that you can actually flexibly do that, if you've hard coded S3 API, well, okay, now you need to, uh, you know, speak the other block protocols. Monitoring, if you're doing monitoring as a service and that's tied into your application, that can be complex as well. Uh, you know, there's really, as well, if you're using Lambda, if you're doing, I'm going to choke on my own words, serverless computing, right? Functions, scale, scalable functions as a service. Um, uh, however you're doing that, uh, if you're wrapping your functions and distributing them and scaling them, how is that done? Again, how is load balancing done? How do you health check? How do you how do you observe that? So it's not really saying you shouldn't ever use any of those functions. It's more thinking about how you use them. If you do anything more than the common denominator, just consider what would happen if you needed to either do your own or use another cloud infrastructure for that. Now, the solution to this 
this cloud jail potential issue that you talk about, the one that you present is you should either go with on-prem or a hybrid cloud. And this, you know, I, I feel like I have been hearing more of this recently. Um, it, but it does sound like a lot of hassle to me. Like, it sounds like if you're a commodity business, then you should, you would want to go on-prem. You would want to go hybrid cloud. Uh, you know, the, the, I think a perfect example of this is Dropbox moving to their own cloud, building their own cloud, because Dropbox is kind, it's not exactly a commodity, but you could see it going in that direction where it becomes commoditized. So they wanted to, to defend their margins by, by, by moving on-prem. Um, you talk about a company doing video encoding and streaming, which sounds like a pretty commoditized business or a, video, a business that could be commoditized. Are there are there certain businesses that for which the cloud is okay? Like maybe like businesses that are extremely differentiated and and have network effects. Maybe they can stay in the cloud and just focus on their business. And maybe more commodity business want to go on prem or hybrid. How do you look at that? You know, in twenty fifteen, late twenty fifteen the venture funding market shifted. And I have a little bit of a bias towards that. I bootstrapped companies before I've joined public companies. Kentec's my first venture back company. So that's what I follow. That's what I nerd about. And people are much more concerned about gross margin uh, and unit economics now than they were two or three years ago. So I don't think it's just, are you going to be commoditized? I think it's if you got an opportunity to have 10 or 20% higher gross margin because of an infrastructure optimization, all in cost, right? Including people, including executive bandwidth, including all the arguments against running any of your own infrastructure, then you should strongly consider it. So I, I really think that it's not just weirdos like Kentik, who's old ISPs and people that ran Akamai and Netflix, and we go, ha ha ha, you know, we want to run our own infrastructure because we like hugging routers. Uh, it happens to allow us at a very s- relatively small revenue. We're in our third year. We're in the single-digit millions, and we've got more than 50% gross margin. And I would not. I would have negative gross margin if I were running on any of the major three cloud providers. And we've been over the numbers with all of them. But um, I think it comes down more more about are you commoditized or are you going to be or is it you know really competitive? Do you have super scale? I think it's less about that and more about do you have $100,000 a month or more? of steady state workload. If you have hundreds of thousands of dollars a month of computers that are always on, and then you're running Docker inside, or you're running whatever, you know, you're, you're configuring it with Chef Puppet, CF Engine, Ansible, Salt, whatever, that stuff is always on. The economics pretty quickly become that running at least some of your own infrastructure for that steady state workload can be compelling. Now you have to, your ops group or your DevOps group, and I don't want to get into a religious war, developers can run operations, operations can write code, but you have to have a team that's comfortable basically with BGP. And But you know what? There's BGP in Docker networking now. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is converging and we see all sorts of web companies that are our customers. They have, you know, five to seven people run their servers and their network and run inf- run hybrid infrastructure. And it's not like you need 10 more people to run your own infrastructure, especially because of containers. Um, you know, OpenStack, that's a whole separate thing. People need 20-person dev groups to do that. But um, to actually use a fleet of servers pretty fungibly is much easier now than even, you know, five years ago that it was. Your company, Kentic, runs in... Equinix facilities? I guess these are data centers. How does that make your economics different? Are there are there operational expenses that you have to pay that um, you know you wouldn't have to pay if you're in the cloud? 
how, how does it how does it differentiate from being in the cloud the experience of running the business so we run uh, in Equinix. We run in two facilities in Equinix in Ashburn, Virginia. Also have a, a presence in Europe. So our infrastructure, which is running a big data backend, it's like Redshift, but we wrote it ourselves to be super fast, super multi-tenant, and very network savvy. So uh, we're we're taking constant ingest from hundreds of different networks around the world, um, and we have two cages in Equinix. Each cage has, I don't know, five or six cabinets. Our hosting bill for the hosting is an overloaded operator, but in this sense, our space and power bill is roughly $15,000 a month. We pay about another 6000 a month for bandwidth, for multi-connections multi at 10 gigabit, and cross-connects, which is a pure margin for Equinix. It's just a fiber they charge you monthly for. Uh, and then our servers, which we depreciate. So we've spent about um, $700,000 on servers and we depreciate that maybe eight or nine at this point, we depreciate that over 36 months. Uh, and we've been fortunate enough in our case to be venture backed and be able to get debt and so that we can actually spread that cost out. So it would either be, you could think of it as $900,000 of cash or more like $25,000, $30,000 a month. And so for that, all in then 50, 55,000 a month. Um, we have infrastructure that runs a couple petabytes um, of infrastructure uh, over half a petabyte of flash, 30 high performance servers. And then we have an ops group, which so we have engineering and then we have a five person operations group that happens to also include people that they know our system, they know our components, they're on the systems, but we have three people actually four if you include the CTO and the CEO of the company that can log into the routers and switches. And we have three routers and six switches and, you know, that, that connect everything together. So what do we have to do? Um, you know, and we have to quote when we get servers and we have to have some hands and eyes to install it, but that's relatively minor. Um, major disadvantage we have is we actually have to do capacity planning. We have to think about, oh, major tier one network signed up, they're going to flood us with traffic. We need to make sure in advance we have enough capacity for the trials uh, for uh, customers that sign up, whereas in the cloud, you don't have to worry about that. But here's the problem. If you price, I'll give you, I think I, I think I put some of this in the, in the uh, article. We have two basic kind of servers. We've got the storage servers, which are 36 core, 24 by two terabyte SSD machines. We run ZFS on those for redundancy and we get compression uh, out of that as well. Those machines cost us, uh, I don't know, $25,000. They would cost us $25,000 per, um, I mean, that's what they cost us. And then it costs us about two, two to $300 a month, worst case, for all in the proportional share of the infrastructure that they use. But, but those machines, we pay over $60,000 a year to be buying them on the cloud even with reserved instances. So very quickly, especially over the three-year lifetime that we look at, um, it's going to be a problem. Uh, our ingest servers, which do a lot of computations, they're more, all these machines are 256 gigs RAM. So the ingest servers are 1U 20 core boxes. Those are $7,000 boxes. We'd be paying $1,500, $2,000 a month for each of those in the cloud. So you get burstability, but if they're always on, and all we do is monotonically scale because we're a crazy startup and we think we're going to grow forever. You know, I'm never going to turn it off. 
at some point I'll roll in a next generation, it's hugely economical for me to actually run that myself. Um, especially, that, but no, we have an operations group that knows networking, and that's something you have to design up front. Um, and, you know, we use Docker. We don't use any orchestration because we're old. We just actually use config management to put everything on there. But we use Docker so that we can do on-prem and our own infrastructure and other hardware. And it's we just have one image that we run daemons out of. So it's like a dpackage you can run stuff from, basically. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of interesting things there. So one is that you, the structure of your business sounds like it is very much predicated on having a lot of capital up front, um, whether you have that capital yourself or you raise that capital from VCs. Um, and also, it seems like you're, you get a lot of edge out of your background because you have a background in networking. A lot of people have would would never want to build a business where they still have where they have to operationalize their no one wants to touch a thing right no if one a wants thing to touch has a, thing. a name you're doing it wrong right <laughs> unless it's a name like sqs or s3 <laughs> or ec2 or some i mean we we like acronyms well you're fi- or you're fine with a docker string which is just a long hex uid that no one can remember yeah so that's okay because you can't remember it so you can't actually start cutting it so yeah, so 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 this is my devil's advocate argument against the the cloud jail thing is like some people they're the only way that they could even try to build a business is to is to imprison themselves in cloud jail. Well, note I wasn't saying in the article that you shouldn't start with cloud or that you shouldn't use cloud, especially if it's free, especially if you're getting a credit. But even so, right, if you're starting and it's a proof of concept, look, I, you know, it is possible to bootstrap. Infrastructure, I started a Usenet company. I started my ISP in 1992 from a couple thousand dollars of hardware and, you know, built that. And I started a Usenet company in 2004 from about $20,000 in hardware and wound up with a couple million dollars in hardware. So you don't have to be VC back to do it. But I'm not saying don't use cloud. Absolutely use it. But just at the point that you've got roles that are always on, not burstable, not, you know, oh, I'm just going to go do that bursty encoding or... I run these events and on the weekend where I need to go mail people. There's a lot of different kind of workloads, but if you have things that are always on and it's costing you a regular hundred to $200,000 a month plus, I think that's the threshold. And what I was trying to say was make sure that if you think it's possible, you could get there, that your use of the cloud abstractions is well abstracted. So that you have you you have options. Now you always have an option. Let's say you're just an Amazon. Pick any of the cloud jails that you can check into. Um, you run a cross connect into an Equinix. Run your own infrastructure. It's there across your VLAN on the back end, and poof, you're, you've taken off some of your infrastructure. In our case, and I'll give you one other one other use case here, which people do like to argue about, but I, I have the I have the data from our customers to show that it's a problem. Delivering high-quality, consistent service that's revenue with packets drive revenue from even a multi-pop, you know, multi-availability zone in one cloud provider, you're going to suck. And you're going to use a CDN, and you're still going to have 3% of the world you can't get to. And you have no control. You have zero control. You cannot complain. You can complain, but you're not going to get Amazon to change their routing for you. Even if you have very actionable data, and this is our business of, I'm getting TCP retransmits to this prefix and, and nowhere else, and it's not my application. You're just not going to get them to change the network policy. And in our case, we also had to sort of 
we knew we were going to be communicating with hundreds of networks all over the place. And some of them would want to cross connect to us because that's all us dinosaurs rock. But also we need to change our route. And again, you can, and that's why actually more than the cost, why we see some people get at least the front layer of their infrastructure or under their own control, or again, load balance, they use, they'll use NS1 or they'll use uh, you know, a, a global load balancing service and they'll have something they control that they can change the routing on. And people like Yelp, or, you know, our customers, Yelp and Pandora and Spotify, <clears throat> Shopify, I mean, these people, the revenue is what they're there for. They can't make more revenue. They need to protect what they have. So the, the performance of it becomes an aspect also. But, you know, again, depending on your type of business, if all you're, if you don't talk to the end users and you're very bursty workload, then you're perfect for cloud. And if you can take the outages that any one cloud will have, then maybe you don't need to engineer for multi-cloud. So let's move on to the next mistake that you explore. No, I, I think you made a, you made a lot of compelling points. I, I like the I like the cloud jail argument. So the next the next one you talk about is hipster tools. You talk about people falling for hipster tools. What is a hipster tool? So you know, to me, a hipster tool. And my co-founder of Kentic, you know, often has a beard, rides a fixie bike. Uh, you know, is in some ways looks like a hipster. So um, it's it's a fad. It's a tool. It's the newness. It's the hotness. It's not your grandpa's MySQL. You, you did a podcast with uh, Uber about why MySQL, Postgres is the shit, or no, no SQL is the shit. Why, why, why go back to MySQL? So, what, you know, old boring tools, there should be a, a good reason if you have a good solution to a problem while you're adopting something, and I'd say new, something very, very new. I'm not saying don't ever change, but when something's evolved, someone else has built it, they clearly have a real problem. My experience is, it will generally only mostly work if you give it the same input and expect the same output and are running it in the same kind of environment. And very few companies have exactly the same kind of environment from place to place. I've been bit by this with Gluster and then with Ceph and then with Console. And, you know, you just have to consider, am I trying to solve a problem that I have or am I just, like, interested in doing this, uh, you know, to do this? Well, so there are certain times when investing in a hipster tool will crush you, but there are also times where it can pay off massively. For example, people who invested in React.js early on are benefiting, are reaping the rewards now that the, the project has so much momentum behind it. And today, maybe you could say the same about Lambda or serverless or whatever you want to call it. Like if you're investing in serverless these days, you know, probably we're going to have some really cool abstractions around serverless. And if you develop a, an, uh, an expertise in it, then, you know, maybe that's going to benefit you down the line. So there are some benefits to investing in the hipster tools. Well, I think what you just said is actually pretty interesting. And look, companies are made up of people. People are concerned, you know, about growing intellectually and about their careers. But you do have to consider, am I doing this because I want to grow in my career? Or am I doing this because this is what's right for the company, even in the future? Right, given where I think the trends will be. And again, I think sometimes that gets convolved a little bit. But let me take a, take React, for example. There is a monitoring company that is no longer that chose React as their backend back in, I don't know, 2009, 2010. Half of their blog posts were about all the time and effort they spent to try to make it basically work. Yet, I, they're really smart people at Bachelor. A lot of ex my people that I worked with were there. But it was a very evolving thing, and I guess the question is, did you need, you know, my question for, you know, let's framing it against that is, did you need a scalable key value store? 
that you knew had great algorithms that could resync, and there was nothing that, that you know that was more mature that you had familiarity with and you knew how it broke, that would work, right? You tried Redis and that didn't work and that didn't scale. You knew you needed to resync. The people that used React spent a lot of time getting it to work. It did not work well for years. Um, and so that's an interesting question, is what's the point on that curve where you do that? And all I, what I was trying to say in the article is, you should have a problem that is severe enough that you would consider writing a tool. And if you are gonna go with an early tool, then a really good sign that it's probably at the right time for the company is that it would be worth it for you to contribute to debugging and feature enhancement to that. But it will save you time because you have such a need because that's going to drive your product. Um, it's going to drive the business, drive the revenue. Um, I've well, when you... When when you talk about the downside risks of these hipster tools, you mentioned that you've seen companies lose customer data because they're overly aggressive in their experimentation with these hipster tools. And that's like the worst case scenario. Like if you lose customer data, that's a loss of trust. Can you talk about a specific incident that you've seen where someone has suffered because of the choice of a hipster tool? I guess, I mean, I guess the React, I guess the React example is perfect already. Uh, so maybe, maybe we don't need another well, example. Well, React actually wasn't losing data. It was more discombobulating. And people weren't really using it in terms of, you know, banking data or whatever. Uh, this was actually with Gloucester. Um, I've seen two different companies um, with Gloucester. This is, this is a file system, this right? A file system. So the lower down the stack you go, the more the hipster argument is scary. Except that, except that I would say discovery is pretty damn important. Because discovery connects everything. As again, we saw with Dyn with DNS, right? Discovery is important. Storage is really important. Load balancing, you know what? People can always do A records or something. You could ignore, you could go unfancy. But if you can't find things and you can't store things, then you're in pretty bad shape. I'll, I'll say there's also some MongoDB things, um, you know, that I've seen. Uh, but that was actually when Mongo was already pretty mature and people just didn't understand how to use it. So I won't blame Mongo for that. Uh, but I would say file system um, and uh, file system and maybe some improper use of uh, NoSQL uh, thinking there was consistency guarantees that there weren't, which isn't really germane to this argument. Well, I've seen people actually lose data. And uh, in some cases, like you know, with a bad FSCK, you could write Perl scripts and figure it out. In some cases, you can't. Now, your last piece of advice around infrastructure was to design for monitorability. You say it's critical to think about monitorability in addition to testability. Many people uh, focus on testability, but they might not focus on monitorability. Can you elaborate on that more? What kind of system would wind up in a situation where it's not easy to monitor? It's not designed for monitorability. You know, I think the easiest... The easiest use case is uh, has come out in terms of the technology trends. When I first thinking about this, microservices wasn't quite as big a deal. Uh, people were doing it, but it wasn't really formally microservices. And distributed tracing, the Google, um, oh, uh, what's that called with a D? Uh, Dapper, yeah. Google Dapper, you know, paper hadn't come out, the open tracing, there hadn't been as many things. And so people were running essentially microservices and then just streaming logs into Splunk or whatever your, you know, Elastic or, or whatever your, your Sumo Logic logly, and then just going, oh my God, 
right? There's something that happened, the user had a bad experience, I can see it from New Relic or ROM or something, but where inside did that happen? It was a server problem, and I've got my metrics over here for my servers, and I've got my network stuff over there, and I've got my logs, and how does this all tie together? Um, and I think that now what I would do if I were doing, which probably most people do, something that is, uh, you know, um, like Linkerd load balanced microservices or, or monoliths with load balancers, think about how to get transaction IDs into system to correlate everything and just make sure you're using a high fidelity system. You know, selfishly, I say, think about the networking component of it. Um, so you've got visibility to the servers, the application, the networking. And really, the, I would just say, look at the distributed tracing environment. And if you can't do that, for whatever reason, because you're designing industrial control systems and they don't speak IP, I don't know. Just make sure that things are verbose in logging and have enough information that you can tie things together. Because human time um, gets wasted so severely when um, in a distributed system, you get a problem that, that shows up somewhere, but the actual root of it is half the infrastructure away. Or it's actually the storage or the networking or something. It's in the cloud, it's often the networking. But it's exhibiting as some microservice, a queue depth, right? Or a uh, microservice backend performance because there's back pressure on the database or something like that. Um, just having correlated logging across the layers of the infrastructure and application is what my advice was. Just think about how to do that. Find a, an infrastructure to do that. I'm a big believer in the future that we should have functions, whether it's Lambda, whether it's serverless or serverful, um, you should have your, your functions emitting and do your APM, I think, will go that direction instead of instrumenting the app stack because I hope to see much more. I know people won't run C like me because I'm a dinosaur like that. GWAN is a web server. You can write C code as your, as your application, but I don't know what else to do that. But go, right? You don't instrument the Go stack. Uh, you're not going to say, I don't think. I mean, maybe you're like, we'll do something with that. But there's a lot of tracing functionality that people are building in um, not only to the internals of the application, but also to pass along why it was doing that so that you have some data afterward. And then there's a lot of monitoring companies that are, that are starting from the thesis that you can keep everything, or people do it themselves, again, with Elastic or, or Splunk or something like that. One thing that's interesting about monitoring that we've been discussing on some shows recently is this idea of proactive versus reactive monitoring where proactive is your you sort of design your monitoring in a way that you can derive business value from it over time and perhaps you can make business decisions i mean as the as our infrastructure gets higher higher and higher uh piles of abstractions then it becomes more important to have visibility into it and to to think about ways that you could cut costs or to measure things around that stack. Um, but there's also like the idea of monitoring as a way to have really good visibility in the uh, context of an incident response. Like I, I was watching this, this event with Dyn quite closely when you know, the IoT DDoS that we had recently, and, and I saw a GIF of um of like dyne rebalancing and and doing some like just a, a visualization of of them responding to this ddos um you know so that you could see these servers your servers just scrambling to rebalance and and figure out a way to uh to get things going again and you know you spent some time at akamai which is a huge cdn and and i'm sure there were some some types of ddos events that you dealt with there and 
So um, can you explain, I guess, how your experience at Akamai affected your beliefs about monitoring and and I don't know if, if you can if you can squeeze it into your answer, like how how a, a company like Dyn in that in that horrible situation that we saw last week that's that's I'm sure going to become more frequent in the future. How how does a company respond to that type of event, and and how important is it to have good monitoring in place to be able to respond uh, in an intellectual fashion? So let me let me answer those two questions separately, and say that I'm actually pretty religious about what Akamai has done for monitoring. In my original section of that interview with First Round Review, I was going to talk more about that. And then I realized that distributed tracing is a close enough approximation that, um, you know, and, and such a great first step that it was going to be easier to talk about. So it was an interesting, good lead question. So at Akamai, I started at Akamai in October 99. So it was a couple of weeks before the IPO. And there were a couple of programmers, I'll call them Y and S, who uh, I, won't, I won't say their full names, but early Akamaians will know who I'm talking about, who you know, single-handedly wrote first versions of half of the backend infrastructure systems. And as I was coming in, they took away the root keys from developers. And these two guys basically said, okay, I'm out of here. Like, I know what to do. Everyone else is morons. Uh, you know, don't punish, punish me because of that. But they actually said, you know, the, the point was, look, it needs to be specified infrastructure. We need to push a button to make it so... And you know how developers are going to work? You're going to make callbacks to debug everything. As you write the code, you're going to write the monitoring functions you're going to use. Declare which you want to pull from. And instead of pushing, they would basically, very, very Prometheus-like, even though I, I think Prometheus is way too religious about this. They, there would actually be a system that would pull, pull from you, and that was how you would do push if you knew you wanted that data regularly. So let's say I want to know Q-depth in this multi-threaded application. I'd have a callback. Now, there's a system that Akamai uses. There's a great paper about it. It's called Akamai Query. It's SQL without basically distributed state with caching, hierarchically organized. So you can connect to these aggregators and say, show me all the machines where the sum of all the traffic from all the services is more than 20% more than all the Ethernet interfaces. And it will do that by going geographically to a region of servers, to each server, and it will have a TTL for every column in every table that you could logically ask for. But a lot of those columns are actually just, again, callbacks to your code. So you've thought about what to do, and then the entire Akamai knock, and I'll say I left seven years ago, but still substantially that way, it was 100%, I think it's now still close to 100%, is SQL queries that run every period of time looking for rows and tying into a knowledge base. And every time there's an incident, they say, oh, what should we have asked? Or someone goes and pushes code into a component to be able to answer questions. Very little actually getting on the servers. And it is very powerful for being able to have low overhead, except when you need it, and great visibility into your infrastructure. And with that, Akamai can also get into the packets, it can get into the errors. So if Akamai has an event, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about any recent time because I've been out of, out of Akamai for a while, you could sit there um, wherever you are connected with authentication and encryption into the network and ask questions about where's the traffic coming from, how many slash eights is it, right? Is it, is it, is it forward source address to an approximation? Um, what applications, what users of those applications, what customers really are, you can push rate limits to at least protect the system 
Um, and then how they do mapping and how they do workload and move attached customers like Cloudflare now does. That's another, that's another system. So Akamai really does a lot of engineering around monitoring. It does it in advance and definitely leverages that for attacks. But, you know, really Akamai also is watching very closely and Akamai's customers all have room user monitoring. They're paying Akamai a lot of money for great, really five nines and also great performance. So it's used more to debug why some strange thing happened. And then they also have always done 100% logging of everything because Akamai can't bill people based on SNMP because one server could be serving everybody. So they've always had to have a MapReduce type log system. So let's go to Dyn. Or, and, and again, we, don't, we want to support Dyn, not pick on Dyn. But let's say you're a DNS service provider and you're being attacked. Your problem. Well, absolutely, and 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 just to just to be clear, this was like an unprecedented type of attack. Um, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've seen multiple articles, and I will say I don't know. I don't know the dying people. There are people that claim it was not ten million IPs. It was not you know ten ter. There's there's numbers from you know three hundred gigabits to a terabit to ten terabits that I've heard from forty thousand hosts to a million hosts to ten million hosts that I've heard. Clearly, Mirai is bad. Clearly, you know the, the what we've seen is not as bad as when our homes start haunting us. Right when, when everything in the home is connected and we get haunted at night by the hackers, right, and and they start playing with our minds. Um, but um, you know, but just using your broadband, right? Um, you know, yeah. Can you generate a terabit attack? Yes, you can generate a terabit attack. It happened to Krebs. It was enough that Akamai said, "Well, we're not going to pay for that." Google said, "You know, beat their chest and said, aha, well, we have it. We we take it from here." Um, so let's just posit that it was a terabit per second. Um, and we don't know how much capacity Dyn had. Again, even if I did know, I, 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 I couldn't tell you, and I don't know. Um, but they probably use Anycast. Um, I think I think they they do. So you know that those attacks are roughly not perfectly. We say geographically, it really means network topologically. Uh, when you use BGP Anycast, it really means not that you're geographically load balancing, but you're network topologically load balancing, which approximates to geography. So you've got some puffs, but I've also read things that say they were doing some things which are really difficult, like randomizing parts of the domain, but using base domains that were actually dying customers. So you've got, I, th I think, again, I, I'm not an expert from having seen the packets in this attack, but you've got application level attack, and then you've got the volumetric stuff. Um, and then you've got the volumetric stuff that's going to overwhelm you. You've got the volumetric stuff that is just going to be a problem for the kernel. Um, you know, sin floods, obviously, there's protection against that with cookies and whatever, but still there are things that are more difficult. Um, you know, slow, slow attacks where you make a TCP open. And unfortunately, um, we didn't give enough bits to IPv4. Unfortunately, the RFC says you have to answer resolving questions for DNS and TCP. And what that means is that people can open a million connections to you and just send you a packet every just enough that you don't time out the session. That's an example of not a volumetric attack, but something in the operating system, right, which is your queues and all the TCP sessions and the state and all that, that that's being attacked. So you can see all three of those things going on. So how do you deal with it? Well, number one is what's happening. That's obviously monitoring is important for that, and then monitoring is important to see the, the before and the after of as you deal with it. 
And to use the Akamai example, um, I don't wish my friends from Akamai attack, but you should know in advance how many different base domains are being queried. What's the entropy of maybe the first, the, the, the base part of the domain, not the, uh, you know, or the unique part of the domain, not, not the base domain. The entropy of that is a good approximation for is someone doing an attack designed to bust your hash. Right. Those are things that happen often enough, you can program them in, in advance, so at least it's all instrumented. Packets per second and bits per second, number of connections um, established, all those things. And then, you know, you try to deal with it. Uh, you need to have an out-of-band infrastructure so you can actually get into these pops if they're overwhelmed. And what a lot of people do is a combination. Um, this is something we're in the business of, is working with customers around the detection and then protection for DDoS. It's a combination of what you do on the servers, what you do volumetrically if you run your own infrastructure, which some people do, um, and then uh, cloud providers like Prolexic or Verisign or Newstar or Radware that you can overflow your traffic to, and they'll do both, they'll scrub the traffic down, and even some of them will say, okay, well, these are the Mirai IPs, we're gonna block those. Sorry, Grandma, if you're, or, sorry, Hotshot, if you're infected. I won't, I won't pick only on grandparents. Um, and then specifically, where the Radware and the A10 and those those scrubbing boxes and the services get into it is things like the slow the slow and low attacks, right? The I, I connect to you and then I barely ask you a question and that's designed to overwhelm the top level of your service. Where they fall down is when someone's attacking your protocol. So gaming companies, and by gaming I mean both kinds, both the gambling and the electronic gaming companies. They have they have more of a challenge because people, <laughs> very smart young people with lots of time, attack especially the electronic gaming companies and they'll reverse engineer their protocols and send stuff that the DDoS mitigation providers haven't built the logic in for yet. Or they may have heuristics and may think that it's DNS, but it's actually some other protocol running on port 53. Um, and they may shape it or not proxy it properly. So um, really server application network and then there's different monitoring. All three layers are important, uh, both to detect an attack and then see how you're doing um, while you're mitigating. And then there's cloud providers or box vendors that can help with some elements of it. That's the short answer. When I was researching for this show, I found some old footage of you playing poker. And I actually, rem I, I, I actually remembered that... Uh, I had seen that episode. I used to play poker a lot. I used to kind of play professionally online, uh, and I used to watch all these random cash game poker shows I could find. It was like literally the only thing I would watch on TV was poker cash games uh, and occasionally tournaments. I remembered, it was so weird, I remembered seeing you a long time ago. Um, are you still playing poker these days? You know, a startup CEO, I have very little time to play poker. I take a piece of my brother, who has my old job running network group at Akamai. I usually take a piece of him in the main event, and otherwise, I only play cash games. I don't obviously, I don't have time to play, you know, five day tournaments, even three day tournaments. Um, and so, I was more like three years ago, but um, nowadays, you know, maybe for an evening uh, or maybe just socially, but. Not as much anymore. Also, the game I prefer is Potlum and Omaha, which only really runs during the tournaments, um, you know, especially at the larger limits. And even and then, your best strategy, because you know, if you're a professional player, a lot of it is table selection. 
right? In, in, in our main business, right, in the internet business and in the infrastructure business, you want to play with the top people in the world. In poker, that's actually not the case. Like, it's fun to play with the livey, and I've done that, but that's not actually who you really want to play with uh, playing cash games. So the best in Potlamodoma could drive people so insane. What you actually want to do is be able to roll down at 3 a.m. when the best players are stuck, and instead of using their odds, they just say, well, it's 50-50. Either I hit it. Either I hit my two out or I don't. That's the time of maximum profit. And I just, I can't do that uh, right now because I've generally got meetings in the morning. So, um, but you know what? Business can be much lower variance, uh, even bigger EV, uh, if you get the right idea and execute well against it. Which has been my experience as well. I mean, not only is it, can it be potentially higher EV in terms of, money but it can be higher ev just in terms of like psychological well-being oh God. Um, i couldn't play full time i would go you know ape shit with boredom um you know your brain is not yeah you're learning but you know it's no and and limit limit hold them i'd rather chew my toes off like no no thank you yeah and you know a lot has been said about how poker can help people understand certain aspects of business. And I have definitely found that to be true. Um, although there are also things that I find that poker teaches you that can become an anti-pattern if you translate it to to business. Like, for example, I talk I talk to my friend Hasib Qureshi a lot about startups, and he, he was uh, a big heads-up uh, no-limit player before he moved into uh, coding. And our, our, we always have these conversations that boil down to this issue of framing uh, business or companies. We we talk about it in terms like, is business can do you should you view business in the same probabilistic, stochastic light uh, as you're supposed to view poker? Like, um, you know, there's there's the the Peter the whole Peter Thiel perspective where he says that as soon as you view your business as a game of luck then you've psyched yourself into losing because if you believe it's a lottery, then you, the odds are stacked against you in a lottery. Well, but if you believe... But the argument about poker, right, why is it legal in California is because you argue that statistics with the law of even medium numbers converges. So it's not about luck, it's about skill. And and, and I think, you know, we have, we have mentioned EV invariance at the boardroom where we talk about there's a bigger play to be had here, but it risks... We have this great little business that went from nothing to you know some revenue and we're going to 5x this year 3x next year and then we hope to 2x forever that's that's the you know vc path and that is more than sufficient that's 90 90th 95th percentile but it's not slack or early akamai so what if you knew there was something that you could do that would give you a 10x likely you know greater outcome and only be 50 percent to kill your company well what's the ev on that right you obviously do it but you know, maybe that's not the right answer for the risk tolerance of the investors, the employees, the customers. Is at the same time, I've got people that I've known for decades that have prepaid me for a year. I've got people that I've known for decades that are working for me with kids. We all understand there's risk in a venture-backed company, but we don't naturally take anything. Like the, the professional poker player who will bet his whole net worth on anything, which is 51%, right? I mean, you just – you have to – it's not about, I don't think it's about luck. I think it's just about the risk tolerance doesn't favor the perfect EV play like it might because your bankroll management doesn't perfectly map to something that takes, you know, five five to ten years to realize because you only get so many of those. 
right? So I think you can map it to bank to a lot of poker concepts, but I don't think luck is the is really the big factor. I think it's just EV tolerance is not as pure as it might be in poker. That's my opinion. Yeah. Well, no, that makes a lot of sense. The other the other aspect that I find is hard, that you should you have to shake as if you're if you be, if you're a full time poker player and you trans transition to the world of business. Is that the business world is less of a zero sum game than poker, and poker poker is very much a zero sum game. Is that your experience? It is. I, I definitely, I definitely agree. I've had so much benefit from coopetition, from writing about BGP in the '90s, from selling to my competitors, and these people, people just they grow up and they're big mahoffs all over the place, and they're in a position to help you, and they want to, and even your direct competitors. A lot of them won't execute well, and then you're in first. You know, you're in a great position to be able to do something accretive, instead of even just evilly. You don't want to go in and swoop in because you want great employees, you want great customers, you don't just want assets. So um, I, I think it definitely is. Now, I'll share one other thing with you, because I was very actively playing for various reasons. I was very actively playing, um, uh, you know, for for a number of years that I was at Akamai, and I was thinking about this a lot. Um, what do you have to do to win a tournament, right? And there's strategies. Some people just say, well, I'm going to flip end times. There's people that are as proud of, as they can be of like, well, I only had one all in, um, you know, and yet I won or I came in fourth or, or whatever. But I think that in business, and I don't mean, I mean like venture back business where you're declaring be responsible to other people to sign up for growth targets that are not up to you anymore, strictly, right? When you have your own business, and I don't, I'll say lifestyle business, but I don't mean that's a bad business. I just mean then you can do whatever you want and you're not really responsible to anyone but yourself because you, you own it and your employees understand that it's whatever you want to do. But especially in a venture-backed business, a business that wants to go IPO, I see a lot of parallels to winning a tournament because you have to get lucky. Absolutely, you have to get lucky. But you have to execute to put yourself in the position to take maximum advantage of the luck that you get. And that, that is true even more in tournaments, uh, but also in cash games, and definitely is true in high-growth high business poker, right? You know, some good things are going to happen, some bad things are going to happen. You need to not go on tilt when the bad things happen, and you need to be ready to observe the things which are, you know, the luck coming into play and, you know, take advantage of them. And that takes preparation, which if you haven't done, you're not going to maximize. And so that's, I think, the the attitude in high growth businesses, how do I maximize all these opportunities to get, you know, to a great result within the risk tolerance that I'm willing to willing to take? Yeah, the the mention of tilt um, and becoming inured to tilt. I mean, we, we've we've all we've all tilted and, uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you probably don't tilt much in in business, I'm guessing, um, because like, I mean, in, in poker, po- poker is like built to make you tilt. Like they're just, t- especially no limit. Especially and PLO. <laughs> especially PLO. Um, it's only the temporary nuts. It's only ever the temporary nuts. You flop top set, but you know, backdoor straight, backdoor flush. I mean, you know, you flop the straight and it's like, for sure the board's going to pair. For sure. So. <laughs> right. Well, well, it's, it's, it's just funny because I talked to, there's a number of poker players who have been transitioned, like people who are online, my generation of like on, pure online players that are, that are transitioning now to programming because, because poker is like, is a ter- yeah, unless they want to move to Europe or Canada, um, or do some IP craziness to, to try to play online. And, um, 
and it's funny because they the the poker players they seem to transition to I mean many of them that well, the ones I've met they transition to to programming quite quickly and once they transition they, their perspective uh, is so different than a lot of the other programmers out there because they have this intuitive feel of of EV and this understanding that you know when you sit down at the beginning of your day as a programmer it's much like sitting down at the beginning of a poker session you can do all kinds of different things you could go play seven card stud you could go sit uh, heads up with Phil Hel- or not Phil Helmuth. Uh, would, you would want to sit heads I, up I with Phil Helmuth, help, but you could believe me. I want to, <laughs> to play any game with Phil. <laughs> yeah, but you. Yeah, I mean, you could sit down uh, heads up against um, uh, against Phil Ivy. Uh, yeah, Phil 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 Ivy. He is a terrifying. All I can do is raise him all in. All I can do is re-raise when he raises me. I have, I have no idea what to do with him. His eyes just creep me out. Sure, or or Phil Galfond, or or one of these. One of these really good people, you could do that, and, but in your day would be totally wasted. You would be wasting your time. And I think there are many software engineers who will sit down and probably do things that are low EV on certain days. And um, and I think I don't know the the mindset of a poker player um, does translate to to programming in in many ways. Um, do you have any perspective on how sophisticated the online poker bots are getting these days? I don't. You know, I saw something that I think claimed it could. It, it was positive EV on, was it No Limit now? Or I forget if it was a limit or no limit. I, I don't, it's, there, there's, in my list of companies that I'd love to start, like, you know, I go back to the mud days, um, you know, the list of companies I've kicked myself for not starting um, is much shorter now because I've realized you need to focus. Like I was doing four different things before Kentic and some good friends said, you know, maybe you should just pick, if you want to make Akamai again, you know, company type company, maybe just pick one thing. Like don't build sensors and use net and be CTO of a cloud company and do all those things and play poker. Right? Maybe you should do one thing. So, you know, online multiplayer gaming, um, you know, early poker, early bridge. I, I used to play bridge. All those were things that I, you know, could have done. I just haven't followed it. I haven't followed it at all. But one more point, I think everyone who is a successful professional poker player, and I was never could be full-time. I don't have the patience for it, even with PLO. But you have to have some way of dealing with that stress. One thing you never find poker players, I, I don't mean recreational players, I mean professional poker players, yeah, they might grit, but they don't really mean it. They understand inherently that that things aren't fair. Like a, a lot of people that don't have a lot of business experience, so, oh, well, that's not fair. I did all this work and then I didn't get the result that I wanted. Well, it just happens. If you, if you have to build your tilt condom, then, you know, for me, it's I just sort of disassociate and examine the situation like Spock over there and go, well, that was really interesting and that didn't work out the way I wanted and why. But you have to have some way of doing that or, um, you know, you won't be a winning player. And I think that, that again, also translates well into business and especially the concept of, you know, we do to get its variance. If you only do one thing, then you're going to have incredibly high variance. So you might have been doing the right thing in some logical sense, but you don't get to do, uh, you know, a million of those things. So how do you break up? So you've got at least multiple strategies and you get feedback loops and back to monitoring. How do you know that your strategies are working the way you think they are? I think, again, in terms of business planning, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of parallel. Okay, uh, last last question, and this is like, I realize we're getting really far flung from infrastructure and infrastructure mistakes. But why do you think we, why do you think there have not been more complex 
poker games, more interesting poker games, more interesting gambling games than the standard 52-card deck variations. I mean, why aren't we doing stuff with like multiple decks or new types of cards or... Um, I don't know why does it why don't we see that in casinos? I have some some people I used to play in a home game with actually did a startup that does uh, you know electronic tables, and so I, I know some lessons that they learned from that. I never invested, but they they I had the opportunity to. I, and I'm going to be pretty careful now. I think there are many different humans come in many varieties, and there are many skills which have nothing to do with pure processing speed and multitasking and learning speed was artistic skills. You could lock me in a basement and say, you need to paint like a moving piece of art. And I would just, you know, before you get food and I would just die. I would just, I, I might even just give up and die. Um, but I think that the 50th percentile population, um, uh, well, let, let me back up. Why do professional poker players pay poker? Because there's so many bad players playing poker, right? And if you make the game too hard, people won't learn it and people won't play it and they won't lose their money and that won't fund the professional class. So I, I think that's basically why you see Wheel of Fortune and Wheel of Fortune and Wheel of Fortune uh, as the slot machines and you see poker, which is simple enough for people to learn. And in fact, Hold'em, which is even simpler than, than you know, draw games um, or stud, maybe you could argue that, but... Um, uh, you know, there's enough hold them on TV that they people can think that they can play it. And I think if you make a new game, well, now it's like making a new business, right? You need to convince people that they want to do on-demand video like YouTube. Uh, and that's a lot harder than just finding a tweak um, or leveraging an existing ecosystem. So I think it, if you, I, it never occurred to me that we would see more complex games than poker because poker is already pretty complex. Uh, you know, and it's been successful at getting people to be parted with their money. Um, so maybe that's an overly cynical view. Um, but again, why have we not seen more in slot machines or distributed, you know, the poker or like, you know, I go to trade shows all the time that are in casinos. How many people have you seen uh, at traditional um, roulette tables versus the electronic roulette tables, right? Which obviously are great for casinos because people are, you know, making more decisions, more bad more bad bets per hour, so they lose more. Uh, but uh, people still play roulette because they want the social interaction of it, and it's you know a game they understand. Okay, well, Avi, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have greatly enjoyed this conversation. Um, it was a, a random treat to see you uh, see you, <laughs> see a cash game video um, from back in the day with you uh, on YouTube. So, um, so thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Symphono.